You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. Today's guest on the podcast is U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel Retired Eric Kramer. Eric is the director and co-founder of the Ukraine Defense Support Group located in Kiev, Ukraine. He actually started training Ukrainian forces back in July of 2022. I met with him last month in Ukraine, had an exciting conversation, and I'm excited to have him on the show. Eric, welcome to the show. John, I appreciate it. Thanks again for spending some time with me when I was in Kiev. An amazing story of what you and your group has been able to accomplish, and I'm really excited to talk about it. But since most of the listeners might not know, although some of them might, since you have had such a uh, broad career in the military and now out of the military. Can you give us a little bit about your background? Yeah, absolutely. So I actually went to basic training in uh, 1985. You know, I started out listed as a combat engineer. I ended up going to the Citadel Commission. I spent 26 years active duty, you know, both enlisted and officer. I was a retired or was a special forces officer. Spent a lot of time in Europe in the Balkans, I was in first the tenth, and I was third group. Spent a lot of time, you know, like everybody else in Afghanistan and Iraq. Also, uh, did a lot of counter WMD work, well, with an organization called the Defense Threat Reduction Agency. Uh, my last assignment was at the Pentagon, uh, working uh, directly for the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations. Then, after that, did some consulting work, and then I went to work for the Asymmetric Warfare Group (AWG) uh, at Fort Meade, Maryland, and I was with them for three years. That was when I first came to Ukraine. I was part of a group working out of the embassy, and we were doing a study on what the Russians were doing over here. Uh, we wrote a handbook called the Russian New Generation Warfare Handbook. It was interesting at the time. We didn't think much of it, but it was the only real product out there that was talking about what the Russians were doing. Part of that study, we went to the Donbass, the combat area, all the major training centers throughout Ukraine, and so got a really good feel for what the Russians were doing. And the interesting thing, my background too, I, I was dual tracked as an SF guy and a foreign area officer, Russian FAO, even though I never did any work with it. I did go through the schooling and defense languages too. So in my career, I spent an inordinate amount of time focusing on the Russians. And a matter of fact, the Russians in Bosnia, when I was there as an SF guy, they were our quick reaction force. So I you know, pretty much lived with the Russians too for several months. So I think I've had a unique perspective on what they're doing over here. Anyway, worked at AWG, worked a lot in Ukraine, did a lot of work in Korea as well, focusing on North Korea and China. And then I left that. I was a CEO of a tech startup called Emerging Technology Institute that focused on drone, counter drone, electronic warfare. Ran a nonprofit for a while, helping Gold Star uh, Widows from the U.S. Special Operations community. Then I came over here last year, 2022, and started training Ukrainians. I started out with the Mozart Group. I was a director of training. Of course, Mozart Group folded, and we started our uh, own company, Ukraine Defense Support Group. So I've been training Ukrainians since last July, and I've trained every service. When I say Ukrainian Armed Forces, we're talking about the Army, uh, Territorial Defense, Border Guards, Combat Police, National Guard, Special Operations. The only folks I have not trained are the Air Force, Navy, and uh, Naval Infantry, aka Marines. So I got a pretty unique perspective on what's gone on over here. Yeah, absolutely. And there's lots in your background that, I mean, just position you so 
amazingly to be of assistance. Um, I have to say, I usually like to take a moment in silence for the death of the asymmetric warfare group and all the great things that it was doing. I do know about the Russian New Generation Handbook and many other handbooks to include the Subterranean Handbook, Urban Warfare, Complex Terrain Company, like all the great things. And that's amazing that you were able to not only work with ABOG, but also already have an understanding of the training infrastructure in Ukraine before the war. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Because I don't think I've ever done a show about that and kind of the transformation. I have done a little bit of work with other people. You know, I'm a one trick pony. I do urban warfare, but you end up in conversations like, you know, when we were having a conversation, but you got an insight before the war on what was the training, you know, institutional training and capabilities of Ukraine before the war. Well, I would say this, there's definitely been three stages to the Ukrainian transformation. There was the 2000, before 2014, before Donbass and Maidan revolution and Crimea annexation, where their military was a military in name only. Uh, the only reason the Russians stopped is because they outran their logistics lines. They would have gone straight to Kiev. Between 2014, 2022, Ukrainian armed forces went through a pretty huge transformation. Unfortunately, uh, you know, their success, you rarely hear about the transformation and crediting a lot of that. I credit a lot of their success to what happened in that interim period. They got rid of a lot of the old school kind of, you know, Soviet officers. I mean, that mentality is still there. They started doing actual, you know, trying to do some combined arms training, set up training centers, especially a big one out west, Yavrev, which is near Lviv. It became like their NTC. You know, I worked a lot uh, with uh, General Hodges, the USER commander at the time, uh, going around trying to cajole the Ukrainians to move forward with doctrine and get out of the Soviet mindset. So uh, anyway, between 2017, the last time I was here and now, I've seen a pretty big transformation. Probably the biggest thing I've seen is a lot of the leaders, the company grade, field grade leadership, they realize the old Soviet way of doing things, which does not focus on mission command very centralized execution, does not allow for initiative. A lot of that's going by the wayside, but it's still there and it's still a huge cultural hurdle to overcome. Yeah. So one of the things, one, you mentioned General Ben Hodges, who has now become one of the, for me, one of the most informed, reflective, ground truth voices on the the war on Russia's illegal invasion into Ukraine to this date, I'm really a big fan of his work, his interviews, student of warfare, huge fan. Always have been. He's actually one of the first actual speakers at the Modern War Institute back when we started in 2015. So interesting. So talk to me about that infrastructure because you know a lot of people talk about the one training base in the West, right? But you know, like you said, like a combat training center, and how challenging it is understanding the geography of Ukraine? Well, the, the problem that we run into a lot, Ukrainian armed forces, everything is stovepipe. The army has its own training, military academy, NCO schools, MOS, you know, specialty skill schools and training center like Yavra. The National Guard, which is about 100,000 strong now, they have a police mission as well as a combat mission. They're actually on the front line in Bakhmut with tanks, uh, armored personnel carriers. They have their own training infrastructure. They have their own equivalent of NTC uh, out in Starlaset, which is out west, which you, where you can actually maneuver battalions. They have their own academy. They have their own training center here in Kiev. So every service 
whether it's the National Guard or the Border Guards who've also been required to stand up a combat brigade and the Army have their own training facilities, the same with the special operations guys. I can't speak to the Naval Infantry, but I'm pretty sure they got their own thing too. So there is that. There are more training centers, but they're extremely stovepiped. And that's been one of the frustrating things here. I'll give you an example. I worked quite a bit with a, a National Guard brigade here in Kiev. Been working with them for several months. There was a territorial defense unit that we wanted to train. I went to the brigade commander and said, hey, I'd like to bring these guys in. And he said, the National Guard? And I said, no, sir. And he said, no way. I cannot allow. It takes the National Guard commander to allow another service to come on our base. So that just gives you an example of how they could use with a, you know, Goldwater Nichols Act or something like that. But yeah, they do have the facilities, but they're not used the way uh, we would want to use them. A lot of their exercises are canned. There's not free play. You know, if you make a mistake, it doesn't, you know, mistakes don't build. You're not allowed to make mistakes. So unfortunately, that's part of what they're missing in the, at their training centers. I want to go back to when you make a decision, where are you when the full-scale invasion starts, and why did you decide to go back to Ukraine? Well, I was in uh, Spain visiting my daughter who was teaching English abroad, and I was laying in bed with COVID. Oh. I will admit I got it wrong. Even up to the last day, I said, there's no way. It makes no sense for Russia you know, to invade. They're going to paint themselves in a corner. You know, Ukraine is roughly the size of Texas. There's no way the Russians are going to have success. So I got it wrong. I readily admit it. But when it happened, I, there are very few things in life that are black and white. And for me, it was a black and white. It was right versus wrong. It was a bully versus the bullied. I'd been over here before, you know, got a, had a strong affinity for the country and the people. I saw what they wanted. They wanted what we have in America. They wanted to have free society, lack of corruption, good schools, good life. That's what they wanted. And to see this being taken away from her, attempted to take away from I could not sit idly by. And plus, given my background, it was like I was tailor-made to go to this conflict. I'm not a war junkie, but, you know, my background focusing on the Russians and training armies, it, it just made sense. So I made a decision to, to come over and help. And I was only going to be over here three months and, you know, a year plus, I'm still here. Yeah. Wow. No, I, I've heard that from many people I've talked to is that war is political, it's complex. It's even societies are complex that trying to simplify for people becomes a challenge, but everybody wants it to be simplified. But I've heard that a lot from people that have gone there, that there's extreme clarity on almost just war theory on like the reasons for this happening. And then the way it's being executed, that there is a clear line between good and evil, really, in the awful things that the Russian military, whether you believe in conspiracy theories on why they did it, but the way they've executed it, it's just pure evil. So talk to me a little bit about coming into country and then beginning work. I'm guessing that you just had extensive contacts from your work prior, but wasn't there a basically legislation that says that Ukraine can't contract for lethal training and other things? No, well, first of all, private military companies are against the law here. And then U.S. foreign policy is uh, no boots on the ground. And that's translated into no contracts, except for some demining and the USAID contracts for training. And then Ukrainian government, I can't speak to the law about it, but I know for, they're not contracting 
uh, folks are training. You know, there's some weird little niche things where you got guys that sign up to be part of the territorial defense or National Guard, foreigners, and then they do training, but they become part of the military. There's no true blue. We're here to, as a contract to train folks. So I came into country as a first a volunteer trainer with Mozart. Then they started off in a little bit basic pay. You know, I was here just a few weeks and they asked me to take over all the training. What I saw with the training across the board, whether it was Mozart or any of these other organizations, there was a lot of good organizations out here doing training. They were in a Band-Aid type approach of, hey, we're sending guys to the front with zero training. We're giving them a week. Here's how to use their weapon, malfunctions, basic first aid, and away they go. And so that was what was being taught across the board. And I realized that, first of all, one week isn't enough. And second of all, if you're not doing the planning correctly, it's folly. So I started changing the way we were doing things. It became more than just the basics. We started looking at field craft. We started teaching basic NCO skills and then planning at the company. Then I moved to battalion, the brigade level. And when I first got over here, the planning classes were, they were abysmal. I will readily admit it because I was teaching straight out of, you know, CGSC. I was teaching the way we were taught and it just doesn't work here. So I realized over time I had to modify the way I was teaching planning. They don't have a 72-hour cycle. They don't have the time. They're lucky if they get 12 hours to plan a mission. That would be amazing. A lot of times they only get a few hours. So we had to modify the amount of time. We had to modify the amount of detail. You know, when it comes to the mission decision-making process, course of action development, hey, do we need to have three courses of action? No. One, maybe two. So anyway, over time, we've morphed the way we teach planning to what fits to them, too. And there's also a cultural thing, too. Mission command here, they're still learning it. They're very much concerned about giving away information. They have concerns over collaborators. Adjacent unit coordination is almost non-existent. Part of it has to do with they just don't trust the other unit because they've had to deal with infiltrators. So anyway, that's sort of my saga, starting from getting here and just teaching the basics all the way up to more advanced planning. We've done that with the National Guard, to a lesser extent with the Army, the Border Guards, the police, and special operations. Yeah, that's a lot. So just for a civilian, because we do have a lot of civilian listeners and really appreciate them, but also have, you know, we had the full gamut. So when you say that it's hard for them to execute mission command, you mean the ability to basically develop an order the leader creates an intent of what wants to happen, and that's executed by solid leadership who understand the intent, and then they can deviate from the plan, what we call initiative or things like that. Yeah, absolutely. There's a cultural thing, and then there's also throwback to the, the Soviet army. If you take a look at you know most of the colonels and above, I'll even say majors and above in the Ukrainian military, they were either part of the Soviet military, or they were trained and mentored by officers who were part of the Soviet military. So you're trying to change a cultural paradigm. When I went and taught at the Border Guards Academy with their instructors, one of the gray beards in the back, he had the equivalent of the Medal of Honor from Afghanistan. And he was very, very skeptical of what we were teaching. And, you know, he kept asking, well, what happens if this company commander fails to do his job and you give him this initiative? Does he go to prison? Whoa, what the heck? Where's that coming from? It's a cultural thing. There is that threat of, hey, if you screw up, you're going to get in big trouble. So whereas in the West, yeah, you have to take responsibility for everything that happens and fails to happen. I like to think we give our leaders the room to make mistakes if they're trying to follow the intent. They just don't have that culture over here. That's changing, but it's easier to send over F-16 or Abrams tank than it is to change culture. So that's what you're running into. 
I imagine. And I'm fascinated by the details, especially as a, I was a ranger instructor and you start off, doesn't matter where they come from, with teaching them the basics of planning. Is that what you're talking about from planning the, the five paragraph op order and the troop leading procedures up to, like you said, you were doing battalion MDMP and brigade. When I say that, it's not to necessarily, if you walked in and saw one of their, one of the orders processes during one of my classes, it wouldn't be like walking into the war college or CGSC. I have maybe five to seven days with these guys. First day is theoretical. By the end of the first day, I'm already got them doing drills. And one of the first drills I do is a timeline drill. You know, I'll give them a mission statement and I'll say, I want you to backwards plan to where we are now, putting in key things like movement, leaders recon, rehearsals, into time distance out, you know, how long it takes to get to a place. Those drills, they just, they've never experienced those before. So it's the basics. We're, we're not doing anything wazoo. We're teaching the basics. One of my main instructors, it was a range battalion NCO, and you know he was concerned. He's like, oh man, we're going to be teaching company commanders, battalion commanders. I said, let me tell you, what you learned in ranger school, it would be awesome if the, their entire armed forces had those basic planning skills. So yeah, that's, I mean, we're teaching about at that level, a little bit higher, not trying to, to denigrate them, but it's the basics. No, I, and, I, and this is, especially from my last trip, talking to you, talking to territorial defense leadership, talking to is understanding this, the magnitude and scale of the, even in the training pipeline to operational units who are, like you said, not like, oh, they're leaving in two weeks. What can we do? Well, almost like a band-aid, prioritize. It's the scale of the problem, right? So if you have a formation, and don't let me, you let me know what you saw. You have a formation, like in ranger school, where we take everybody's ranks off. We, we, I don't care what your experience is. I'm going to re-blue everybody in the orders process and TLPs and the basics. I don't care where you came from. Is one of the challenges of Ukraine is that it's just a, a formation of without that, those key aspects of experience and absolutely a knowledge and duties and responsibilities, right? It doesn't work. I can't teach you even a battle drill to a whole formation of private. So I can, but it's going to take me a lot longer because I have to go to the fundamentals and the basics. Yeah, and you got to teach yourself too if you're a Ukrainian officer. Here's what happens they set up a new, establish a new battalion, whether it's Army, National Guard, or Border Guards. They'll bring in uh, some lieutenants. I know with the Border Guard Brigade, they stood up, guys straight out of the academy and without really a NCO core. I mean, they have NCOs and they're working on it, but it's not what we're used to the years and years of experience and that symbiotic relationship between officers and NCOs. So you've got a brand new lieutenant that's responsible for training 30 to 40 guys, probably who over half of them who just came in the military a week or two weeks ago. And they're having to teach everything from scratch, from, from battle drills, small unit tactics, trench clearing, medical, you name it. Oh, by the way, here's how to use your weapon. Uh, so Right. Yeah. And here's how to put your kid on too. And that's all on that lieutenant. And he doesn't know. So just imagine that. I mean, in, unlike in the West or in the U.S. where you got a new private comes into a platoon in the 82nd, you know, he has a platoon sergeant, squad leaders, team leaders, and spec fours, command sergeant major spec fours, you know, you know, decades of experience in schools that are going to mentor him. They just don't have that here. So I'm getting on a soapbox a little bit. But when there's a lot of folks in the West going, why aren't they having more uh, success with the counteroffensive? You know, we're sending all this equipment. Well, they just haven't had the training like we have, the years and years and years and decades of experience of doing these type of operations. That means a lot. Yeah. 
No, I, I don't mind the soapbox. It's, it's reality and trying to inform the broader world, the complexity of a military system in general. It is about kit. It is about capabilities, but it is also about the military system. Every part and piece has to do its part. Like tactics is not as disassociated from military organization and leader development and experience. Can't just say, I'm going to send you, even if for six months and create what is already in a military organization. This is about mass mobilization of taking a, a military of 160, if that, to a million in a year. Yep. And so, yeah, the infrastructure, the cadre was not there. And, and what has happened too since the beginning of the war, most of your leadership, no matter what the service, especially talking company grade leadership, has either is either killed or wounded. I'm not going to discuss the casualty rates, but I will tell you right now, they're pretty darn high. So a lot of this leadership that was experienced, that had that experience from 2014 to 2022 in the Don Boss, because people forget the war has been going on since 2014, they're just not there. They're killed or wounded. So you have a lot of junior leaderships. Pretty much every unit I would train, best I could hope for experience-wise was maybe 50% had seen combat, and that was actually doing pretty good. And then the rest, the other half were completely green. Like I said, just came in the military one or two weeks ago. So here's my issue with outsiders saying, like a trainer, not you, right? You're in Ukraine. You're different. But to say, like, let's say we send somebody, not even talk about you, we send them outside of their country and a Western trainer is trying to instill the basics, but, oh, that trainer hasn't had the combat experience. Yeah. My little bit of experience. You can have combat experience, but you may have learned a lot of bad things from your experiences. Absolutely. And, and so we've, we've run into that too. One thing I always teach my guys is to, is to listen and to be extremely respectful towards the folks who are training, especially the guys who are combat vets. They might have been not necessarily doing the way things we would do it, and maybe they were doing some things that are wrong, but you still have to respect them. You need to listen, too, when you come to these situations. And, and first, if they're doing something, you need to ask them why they're doing something. You need to listen to the why. So you can better explain if you have a better way or a different way. Just coming in like a lot of Westerners do, and especially the training is taking place outside of Ukraine, you got to build rapport with your students first. And then, of course, a lot of these things that we do in the West just does not work. No, I, I imagine that. Okay, so in all valid, I just wish people listened to, In one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on is to bring that ground truth, right? So the people that I really respect and voices like General Hodges spent a lot of time in Europe. He's still in Europe, actually, in, in Ukraine, or people like Michael Kaufman, Rob Lee, Thomas Given Neff, you who are informing their, you know, what they're saying with actual on the ground information, or people that go to Germany, Poland, visit the training sites, then visit the units on the front line. I have friends that do that. It's it's not simple, right? Nothing in the war is simple, and the simple is complex. Uh, let's. This is the Urban Warfare Project, right? I'm a one trick pony. I, of course, was excited to talk to you because I have my own frustrations, right? Uh, soapbox about training people for urban warfare, even irrelevant of Ukraine. Although Ukraine is the most should be the lens in which you view certain types of urban warfare scenarios. And if I could be king for the day, I would do away with Battle Drill 6. Yeah. Enter and clear a room, yep. which in and of itself, and I know you know this, especially from AWG, in and of itself, that battle drill, which we teach every formation in the U.S. military and other militaries, has its own history. 
It is for a very specific context of a semi-permissive environment where you have an intelligence-driven raid and it is contingent on surprise, like the enemy doesn't know you're there, you're entering a house, a building, whatever room, you're trying to use violence of action, surprise, intelligence to gain an advantage over the enemy that you just surprised in there. That isn't high intensity urban warfare. And I, no matter how many case studies I, I show people or how many times I go out and try to say, okay, yes, but let's change that scenario a little bit. Fine. If you want to do that, because there are lots of close quarters battles training that is relevant. If you modify the conditions in which the squad team platoon, whatever is entering. But if you want to train for high intensity urban combat, let's look at Ukraine, like you said, but there are some differences in capabilities of fires and ISR and things like that. Yeah, and Russian tactics too. Right, Russian tactics, absolutely, and using the waves of people that they'll sacrifice. And especially, even this is my problem with teaching, talking to people about urban warfare. I'm going to shut up in a minute and just let you tell me how you train. But the Battle of Kiev is not the same as the Battle of Bakhmut or the Battle of Mariupol. Or what the battles that are currently happening in Orgina and Robizhny and all the other ones, all the context is different. Let's fine. Let's put a mental model of a positional fight, right? Like Bakhmut, which the reasons for the fight in Bakhmut changed as the battle continued. That when you have a real a defender in the dense urban terrain that you have to go in and get out or you're defending in the urban terrain. That's a lot different than a, a moving battle where you put the enemy at a disadvantage in the urban terrain. He makes a decision whether he wants to stay there or not Yeah. versus this tough strong point to strong point fight. But you've been there for you know, most of the time training people for urban warfare scenarios. And I'm really interested in what were you training formations and different services on for urban scenarios? It's been fascinating. First up, when I got over here and we started transitioning the teaching, because we were really focused on trench clearing and then Bach Mood was kicking off and we started emphasizing, you know, urban warfare. And the problem I had with a lot of my trainers, they wanted, you know, they were former soft guys. They wanted to teach flow drills and kicking down doors and stacks. And, and the first iteration, you know, let my guys run with it. And I was like, wait a minute, we're spending an inordinate amount of time teaching folks how to clear a room. This is kind of ridiculous. You know, and it goes back to something that's near and dear to my heart. The way we set up our kit now, everybody looks like they're soft. You know, when you think about it, why do you need your magazines exposed on the front of your body armor if you're going to be low crawling because or hitting the dirt because of indirect fire? Your magazines are going to get messed up. They're going to get dirt. So that's a whole nother subject. This is such a great point, but actually it's culture, right? Yeah. A really good friend of mine who's the longest serving special forces operator in the U.S. military said it's basically LARPing. Yep. Yep. Somebody gets an idea of what war is in their mind. This includes special operators. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then they, everybody adapts, right? So that's why you see everybody wearing this kit the same way, like, or they're doing in your include room and talking to like JSOC. They don't do that anymore, but it's literally LARPing at a cultural societal level. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it drives me crazy. I mean, you know, the LBE was uh, tried and true for so many decades because it worked, because that was the nature of conflict. Again, I keep going back to low crawling. Yeah. No, explain that a little bit more, right? Because we have non-military people. What is low crawling and what does it mean when you have a bunch of stuff in front of you that you're not going to be able to low crawl? 
So low crawling is exactly what you think it is. Your face is in the dirt, dragging literally you're on the side of your face, dragging your body, trying to keep as low a profile as possible because you're under direct fire more than likely. So when you're in high intensity combat and you have someone shooting a machine gun at you, you want to get down. So what has happened now because of the war on terrorism, everybody has body armor. Everybody looks like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. So you got the body armor sticks out a little bit. Now people have put their magazines, most people carry their magazines on the front of their body armor. There's also probably a pistol there, maybe a radio, you know, a tourniquet. So you're already raising your profile if you're trying to crawl. It just does not work. Back before the war on terrorism, we all wore these load-bearing LCs. They were basically a harness-looking thing. Uh, They looked like suspenders, and your ammo pouches were on your hips, not on your front. You had the front of your chest was clear, so you could crawl and low crawl and things like that. So, I mean, it was something that's been around probably since World War II, but it worked. It's a great vignette. Actually, I once part of a a group called, like the AWG, that went away called the the Chief of Staff of the Army Strategic Studies Group. And the first piece they gave us was a piece about a piece of equipment on a naval gunship that nobody knew why it was there, but they just kept continuing and using it without understanding. And I think the LBE is a great example, right? Yeah. One, the LARPing effect, which is live action role-playing when people kind of want to be cool and they do cool things because they've seen it in a movie or whatever, but the LBE and the, and the equipment is, so if you see a picture of somebody and he's got all this stuff on the front of him, mm-hmm. I really question. Even understanding the evolution of, right, I'm not saying this is the American military moving their GWAT into other people, but it's literally people doing what they think, even how they wear their kit, right? So everybody moved everything to the front of their kit. And another reason was for that. And we used to have these things called butt packs. Like this is just showing Oh yeah, me and you our age, right? We had these butt packs, but all of a sudden you get thrust into a war that's mostly where you're moving around, around the lot vehicle-based. Mm-hmm. So you wanted everything off your back so you could sit in the vehicle and have everything on your front. And the incidents of where you're low crawling were low. So this is the evolution of both seeing stuff and wanting to replicate that versus a combat reality. Like I could hundred percent see, but I think that's a great example on oh, yeah. how they wear their kit. Like you're not wearing your kit for high intensity warfare. Exactly. And, and that, unfortunately that LARPing dovetails into the tactics that were initially being used in urban warfare, which- Yeah, talk to me about that. I mean- Focus on the room clearing, you know, and everybody getting in a stack, you know, behind each other and everybody clearing rooms like they're special operations. So Eric, so they think they're like special operations, but talking to special operations, they don't do it like that anymore. I know, I know. No matter who you are, if the enemy knows you're coming and you do that, you're going to die. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You, I don't care how trained you are and how physically fit. If someone's waiting in a room for you with their weapon raised, I don't care how quick you are on the draw. They're going to get you as soon as you walk into that uh, the funnel of death there, the door. Yeah. And there's some ways, to, you know, you throw the grenade in, throw a concussion. There's all, you know, anyways, talk, talk to me about the how you saw that and then adapted it. Yeah. So I saw us wasting an enormous amount of time teaching room clearing, you know, and then you have the instructors arguing among themselves about the different ways to do it. So we took a time out during the middle of the first training. We were teaching uh, urban warfare and we said, hey, guys, this is not working. This is not what they need. So we started doing lane training where the focus was more on how to move through and operate in an urban terrain, urban environment. In other words, how to move between buildings, how to get in a building. You know, whether it's the door or the window, okay, how to deal with subterranean or basements or things like that, how to deal with civilians 
on the battlefield, you know, a good chunk. There's a lot. There's civilians in all these towns, and they're usually in the basement. A lot of times, the Russians are using it as human shields, but it's something a factor that they need to account for. So, also, how do you do medical evacuation in an urban terrain? How do you navigate? How do you use drones in an urban operation if if you don't want to get compromised because the drone sound, you know, echoes off the buildings? So we started focusing less and less on here's how you clear a room and more and more, here's how you plan an operation uh, and here's how you move through the city. Here's how to use the buildings to your advantage, things like that. And then when it came to the actual inside the building, we spent less time dealing with inside the building. And that was more about here's how you handle staircases. You know, here's how you possibly enter a room. You know, the other thing too, and I don't want to get too much into tactics, techniques and procedures, but you know, they don't necessarily have the bodies for a traditional room clearing mission. Might be only a couple guys. The other thing too is what you mentioned, the enemy knows you're coming. The Russians now, they're waiting until Ukrainians come in a building, they're thermobaric bombing the, the building. So they're rubbling the building too, once the guys get in there. So Ukrainians now, a lot of cases are bypassing buildings just because they know it's going to be a death trap. So that is some of the changes that, you know, they've happened. Oh, and the other thing too is IEDs. The Russians, they booby trap everything. Everything you got when you're walking into a building, you got to assume everything's booby trapped. I went to this one area, and there was the the door was open, and there was a grenade. You know, they jammed in there and pulled the pin, and they still had the spoon down. You know, so you hit that door. One guy bumps that door, and boom, they're booby trapping uh, kids' toys, computers, anything, piles of money, you name it. So not only are you dealing with you know possibly an indirect fire coming in on your building that you're entering, but you also got to worry about the booby traps too. And when anti-personnel mines are everywhere, they throw them everywhere and put them in the trees too. It's crazy. No, I love it. I love the the transition. And I think this isn't just about Ukraine. This should be about Western militaries preparing for high intensity combat against a peer threat, a training program to include, which should be the priority since they're the decisive objectives, urban warfare. You should listen to things like, how about focusing on urban movement versus how many videos have we seen, even of this war or other wars where people are getting destroyed in the streets because they don't even know how to do urban movement. Exactly. And then, you know, what I always do is always grab the officers and we always have at least one urban warfare scenario during the planning sessions. And I usually like to have a culminating exercise too. And, you know, I'll take them on a a terrain walk. That's usually the the second half of the first day whenever I do any teaching. And we'll talk about, hey, if you were defending this city block, how would you defend it? Where would you put positions? Where would you put your casualty collection points? Where your primary alternate contingency uh, positions? Or if you're attacking this area, how would you do this? Trying to get them away from the frontal assault. You know, that's never really been a success story. But so anyway, yeah, getting them thinking about more than just fixating on the building. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, Eric, I could go for a long time with you just because of your tacit knowledge of the challenges and your experience and the training programs you you built, the POIs and the evolution of you seeing what works, what doesn't, making changes. It's really fascinating. But I want to ask you, one, you mentioned to me, which again goes back to that question about contracts and things like that. I didn't get an appreciation until this last visit about the fact that many of you like people, like I agree with you, that are the right people for the right job at the right time, but are self-funded. Is that right? Absolutely. There's nobody, and make sure I'm saying this correctly, nobody I know of is getting paid for contracts, for contracts for training, unless they've actually joined the territorial defense or the Ukrainian military. 
I mean, I'm sure there might be some one-offs, but so everybody that's over here is self-funded. And that's, first of all, Ukraine's an existential fight for his life. So the fact of even having to ask for money is repugnant to me. But the thing is, I got guys that, you know, they got families, things like that. They're over here volunteering. So, you know, I'll get guys over here. I'll get them here for a few weeks and then they'll have to punch back home because, you know, they got to take care of their family. So, yeah, the funding just is not there. The, the training, any funds for training is taking place outside of Ukraine, whether it's in the UK or Germany or some other. I understand some of the reasons but I just have a deeper appreciation for the sacrifice and duty that you and other individuals, and I know of a few, although you've talked to me about some who just said, you know, basically couldn't do it. You couldn't self-fund forever. So they've returned home. Oh yeah. A lot of some of my best trainers. I know there are many challenges, right? And people have offered solutions. Do you ever go to where the training is happening outside of Ukraine and say, Hey, look, here's based on some of the things I've seen and inform those missions. I have not been boots on the ground there, but I've talked to their trainers and their senior leadership in the UK and in Grafenvir and the US uh, Security Assistance Command Ukraine and uh, Wiesbaden. So I've talked to their senior leadership repeatedly about moving the training here. But, you know, it's a lot of its political implications. Unfortunately, the training really needs to take place here. It just does. The tyranny of distance and, you know, the fact that if you're training in the UK or Grafenvir, people are going to train to their home base standards. They're not going to train to, to necessarily always what they need here. And I'm not saying anything negative about the efforts of those guys. They've done it's a hell of a job, especially the guys in the UK. But nothing replaces training here on the ground in Ukraine. One random question. Do you teach the eight-step training model of trying to assist Ukrainian officers and NCOs train themselves? I don't teach the process. We talk about training management. Part of the problem, I have so limited time with them. So I'll teach the first day I put up a statement, mission first, people always, and I get a lot of eye rolls, but that's the whole premise behind everything we do, that your people are your most valuable asset. When we talk about training management, we talk about realistic training. We talk about, you know, another thing we focus on is after action reviews, going over what we did right, wrong, or indifferent, whether it's training or in missions. And then doing opportunistic training, you know, for example, if you're on the front line, you can still teach malfunctions. If you're sitting in a trench, pull people off the line, you can just a little ways back, you can still do training. So yeah, but teaching them training has been more ad hoc. Our folks have been more, hey, they need these skills right now. How have you seen the AERs? Are you know, a learning organization? Are they, they've adapted that standard, let's say standardized that process of doing after actions reviews and learning from themselves? It's hit or miss, to be honest with you. And it goes back to a cultural thing, too. We have learned to approach AERs with kit gloves because the last thing you want to do is denigrate a leader in front of his men. I mean, we don't do that either. But And we even know even the United States, that military AERs can turn into this finger pointing thing. But you have to be very careful over here. Part of it, you know, is cultural, not to be too critical. It really is hit or miss. The guys who've been trained in the West or, or who get it, they'll do the AERs, but there's not always that feedback loop of constantly learning from mistakes, but they're getting there. It's again, it takes time. Okay. Well, Eric, the last question I want to ask is, I know you're, you're still there. You're still in the fight. You're still self-funding. You're still training anybody and everybody you can. What's next for you? What's your future? Yeah, well, I am still a director of the uh, Ukraine defense support group. You know, my LLC over here, my partner, Paul Snyder, who's back in the rear. So I'm going back. It's funny. It, 
just when I thought I was leaving, you know, I've had some folks from Ministry of Defense, other folks reach out, ask me for some help for, with some potentially nationwide programs of instruction, which is what I've been pushing for. So I'll go back stateside, do some work, and then come back over here more than likely. Great. All right, Eric, thanks so much for coming on the show. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, John. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out NDY's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.